This is Jeff Perkins, the author of How Not to Suck at Marketing, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Jeff Perkins to talk about his book, How Not to Suck at Marketing, published by How to Conquer. With over 20 years of marketing experience, Jeff Perkins is a self-described marketing geek who frequently contributes to several marketing publications, speaks at lots of industry events, and has won numerous awards, such as the Atlanta Business Chronicle's Max Award for Marketing Excellence and the Technology Association of Georgia's Award for Marketing Executive of the Year. Jeff is currently CEO at Park Mobile, but he started his career grinding it out in the New York City ad industry, just like the host of the Marketing Book Podcast. His experiences range from traditional to digital, B2C to B2B, and agency side to client side. And interesting facts. He's a native of southern New Jersey, is a big fan of the Philadelphia Eagles and Bruce Springsteen, whom he has seen perform over 30 times. Jeff, congratulations on How Not to Suck at Marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Doug, thank you for having me. And I have to say, as, as you described in my, my bio, I am a marketing geek. So being on the, the marketing book podcast is kind of a bucket list thing for me because I'm a big <laughs> fan of your podcast. Uh, I think you provide a great service to the, the marketing community out there. So really, really excited to be here with you. Well, thank you, and I enjoyed reading your book, and uh, I, I, I love doing this podcast. It's the one fun thing that I, I get to do, and it's sort of professional development as performance art. There's nothing, to me, more exciting than be able to read a book and then talk to the authors. So now, let's get back to you. Springsteen, just so you know, I was born on Bruce Springsteen's 10th birthday. So he and I have the same birthday, which I think you know probably helps explain why I am so damn cool. <laughs> well, well, there's no one cooler than the boss in, right. in my mind. Yes. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I think it's a rite of passage, though, when you are from New Jersey to be a Springsteen fan and to see him as many times as possible. It's my understanding that's required by law. I, I, I believe it is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it just, it's like my happy place is a Bruce Springsteen concert. I just, uh, it's, it's so fun. Uh, and I'm, I'm the guy who is always on the floor because he, he doesn't have seats on the floor. It's standing room only. And that's, wow. that's where I like to hang out. Uh, my wife, I usually buy her uh, a ticket in a seat so she could, you know, sit down at points because she doesn't like the the mosh pit of the floor, but uh, that that's where I like to be. I see. And have you ever gotten up on the stage and danced with him like Courtney Cox did? 
<laughs> no, but my uh, my weird dream is bringing one of my uh, daughters to a Springsteen show and seeing them get pulled up on stage. Oh, wow. Um, which, which I've seen him do when uh, dads bring their, their young daughters to the shows. He sometimes will grab them and bring them up on stage. But that, that has not happened yet. I have not been able to bring my kids to a Springsteen show. And in fact, uh, the more Springsteen I try to play for them, I think the more they tell me this is awful music, dad, I'm never going to a Springsteen show. And so I don't know if it's ever going to happen because uh, I'm not leaving the concert early because my kids want to go home. So uh, we'll we'll have to, you know, I just may have to, that dream may never come true. Kids these days. Yeah. So now uh, you're from uh, the Cherry Hill area. Is that right? Correct. I I like to tell people usually that I'm from Philadelphia because if people don't understand the, the region, Philadelphia is a better point of reference. Right. But always I tell someone I'm from Philadelphia and they said, oh, Philly, what part? And I have to say, well, Southern New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> um, which is probably not as cool as saying you're from Philadelphia. Well, Eagles fans, I just have to tell a quick story. My late father-in-law, you know, he was a, a guy who uh, was in uh, World War II, uh, infantryman, fought the Germans and uh, and made it back and uh, – became a physician and lived in Philadelphia. And on his 92nd birthday, he joked, I was so excited to be able to celebrate my 92nd birthday because I really didn't think I was going to get to my 22nd birthday. <laughs> but then he was always, a, he was a lifetime Philadelphia Eagles fan. And he would always, uh, you know, sit there and I just, he had this look on his face like, come on guys, just once before I die, <laughs> make it to the Super Bowl. So he gets into his mid 90s, and one summer he passes away. That season they win the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh man! So I think maybe he had something to do with it. It, it could be. It <laughs> right. could be. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's unfortunate he didn't get to see that because that was uh, probably one of the best Super Bowls I've ever seen. You know, taking the team affiliation out, that was just a, a good old fashioned shootout and, and super fun to watch. Yes, and with a backup quarterback. With uh, Nick Foles in uh, for the injured Carson Wentz, and yeah. to see uh, to see him take that team to the Super Bowl was was amazing. Now, I I went to the Super Bowl when the Eagles were in it in 2005 in Jacksonville, Florida, and they were pay- playing the Patriots, um, and they lost. And I said, I'm never going again <laughs> if they get there. And then, of course. They get there, and I, I didn't go, and they won. So that's that's a good indicator for me. I just need to stay away when my team is in these uh, championship games. Who knows? I think that my father-in-law lived well into his 90s because he was waiting for them <laughs> to win a Super Bowl. So anyway, well, I first heard about this book from Carla Johnson, our mutual friend, and she's most recently the author of Rethink Innovation, and she mentioned you in the book. She did. Uh, I love Carla. And uh, she actually talked in the book about uh, one of the things we do at Park Mobile, which is called Innovation Days, mm-hmm. where we uh, spend a whole week where we take our, our teams off their current projects in their day-to-day. And we just say, hey, go have some fun with some new ideas. And uh, they kind of go off and break into teams and play around with new technologies and and come back at the end of the week and show us what they did. And it's, it's a really just great way to infuse the teams with new ideas, get them thinking beyond just the day-to-day grind. And the, the most fun part for me is that uh, a lot of the things that they do in these innovation weeks actually make it into the product. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so we actually see it as a way to um, really, uh, you know, increase the velocity of a lot of the innovation with just a simple task that both, you know, the employees really like and the leadership likes, and then our users end up liking because they get all these great new features. Sure. And tell the listeners what uh, Park Mobile does. So Park Mobile is the number one app in the United States where you pay for parking on your phone. So uh, in the past, when you go to a parking, a park in a spot and you go to a parking meter, you'd have to have coins or maybe some uh, piece of hardware would take a credit card. A lot of that is now moved onto the mobile device. So we were really one of the first movers in the mobile parking payment space. We started the company in 2008. Uh, back then, uh, paying on your mobile phone meant you had to call an 800 number and uh, go through some complicated IVR process on your phone. Uh, Then when mobile apps came in, that made the process a lot easier, a lot frictionless. And today we have about 31 million users of the app who are doing parking all over the country. We're in 500 cities. Uh, So really everywhere you go, you look for these really bright green signs that are up around the parking meter. And that gives you an indicator that you can pay on your mobile device at that location. Terrific. So... I think that when you interviewed for the job, you didn't even realize you had a Park Mobile app on your phone. Right, right. Uh, I went in for the interview, and uh, you know, when I had heard about the job, first of all, I, I didn't even realize it was an Atlanta-based company. Uh, and that was, and I'm pretty ingrained in the Atlanta tech community. And so I said, Park Mobile, where, where are they located? They said, they're here in Atlanta. I said, oh, that's weird. Um, I haven't heard of them. And then I looked on my phone. I said, wow, I actually do have the app on my phone. Um, and, and you and thought I've to yourself, wow, maybe they have an awareness problem. <laughs> uh, they, they have an awareness problem. They have a, a brand problem, right? So a lot of people actually have this app, but nobody knows the name Park Mobile. <laughs> nobody actually realized they had the app. And it kind of makes sense because it is a utility. Uh, you're not sitting around on the weekend in the Park Mobile app thinking, oh, where, where's parking around me? That, I really want to know where I could park today. Uh, you use it when you need to park. Uh, but we did done a lot of work since I joined the company to – Uh, Not necessarily create a huge brand, but just to raise awareness enough so people, when they think about parking and they think about paying for parking, they think Park Mobile first. Oh, terrific. Well, great. Well, you sent me a signed copy of the book, and you wrote, Doug, I hope you enjoy the book and we can discuss on your podcast. I promise that an interview with me won't suck. <laughs> well, how can I not invite an author like that on the on the Marketing Book Podcast? And then I was really very touched uh, that you, you dedicated the book to me. You wrote, this book is dedicated to Douglas Burdett, host of the Marketing Book Podcast. You need this book more than anyone I know. You're welcome. Oh, I, I, know, was, I was brought to tears. <laughs> A funny thing about the title, because uh, I, I, I know you've read the book and you you know why the title is what it is. I, I've realized uh, as the book's been published that the title is a bit problematic because a lot of CMOs and marketing leaders contact me and they say, hey, Jeff, I want to give the book to my team, <laughs> but I don't want to send the wrong message. <laughs> Right, uh, and so, so you know, that's uh, that was maybe a, a way that I've sucked at marketing in the naming of the book. <laughs> well, you know what that brings to mind is uh, Martin Lindstrom wrote a book. Uh, his most recent book is The Ministry of Common Sense, and it's about how common sense has been somewhat surgically removed from a lot of companies, and that's what creates this awful customer experience. And when I was interviewing him, I said, you know, 
this is a, a great book for a lot of folks to read. Um, but if I were working for a company, I'd, I might want to give it to my CEO, but I wouldn't want the CEO to know I sent it. And that's when he said, oh, there's a whole program where you buy two books from me and we send you one and then we send the other one anonymously <laughs> to your CEO. <laughs> So there might be something, uh, something like that that you you know another program, just a free business building idea there to, to sell more books. Uh, <laughs> there you Jeff. go. <laughs> so and just so everybody knows, Jeff didn't really write that uh, dedication to me. And there, I should also mention there's a very helpful glossary of marketing acronyms, four pages no less at the end of the book, which tells us something about marketers and our love of acronyms. And uh, had to chuckle as I did throughout the book, where the last one is WTF, which is <laughs> as you say. That's what you say when you see this long list of uh, marketing acronyms. Um, there's also several pages of marketing resources that you uh, offer the readers, like uh, online resources and peer groups and thought leaders and podcasts and so forth. Um, let me just mention the uh, table of contents here. It's in seven. The book is in seven sections, more or less, and it's uh, you know why you suck at marketing, how not to suck. Really get to the point there, Jeff. The third one is uh, having a career that doesn't suck. Lots of career advice in this book. Um, and then the fourth one is assemble a bigger and better band, which is uh, about putting together a marketing team. A lot of listeners, a lot of marketers are always having to field uh, teams or recreate teams or that sort of thing. Uh, part five, which I want to talk about, is uh, avoid su- avoid sucking at small business marketing. And then there's a little bit, a very small section on marketing in the time of COVID. And then the last section is uh, something of a memoir, marketing lessons as a memoir. And at the end of that last section, uh, you write, so now you probably know more than you ever wanted to know about my career, but I enjoyed reading it. So it kind of tells the story. And I think it's uh, really invaluable for young people, uh, people just starting out on their... uh, in their, you know, in their marketing career. So I wanted to read a quick excerpt from page 11. And you write, I've worked at several companies in the past few years where marketing has been literally blown up every few months. The CEO of one of my previous employers once told me that nothing was working, so he fired the marketing department. You read that right. He fired the marketing department. And this wasn't a small department. This was a department of over 50 people who were walked out the door. The CEO wasn't seeing the results he wanted, so he decided to blow the whole thing up. The last company I worked for, QA Symphony, now called Tricentis, had four marketing leaders from 2013 to 2015 before I joined. That's right, four marketing leaders in two years. Luckily for me, I lasted much longer than my predecessors. At my current job at Park Mobile, the previous CMO was in and out in six months. But why? Why have I had success where others have failed? It's not because I'm smarter or more experienced or a better marketer. More than anything, I believe that it probably has to do with my mindset when it comes to marketing and my approach to the job. In the following chapters, I'll provide some practical advice on how to be a better marketer, how to build a great marketing team, and how to strengthen relationships between marketing and other departments. Hopefully, some of this might prevent you from getting fired, but I offer no guarantees. I'll also provide some tips on how to build a career in marketing that doesn't suck. Are you in? Let's get started. And then just one other thing on page 21, you write, this book could just have easily been titled How Not to Get Fired by the CEO. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. So let's step back a bit. Um, could you take us down memory lane and 
Maybe remind listeners about the good old days that you and I experienced uh, in New York working at big agencies, uh, maybe as sort of a, a, a metaphor for how, how marketing has changed into what is now what you call the new normal for marketers. It's it's pretty amazing to look back at marketing when I started my career and, and when you were starting out, Doug, because it doesn't resemble what marketing is today in almost any way, shape, or form. Uh, when I started at Saatchi and Saatchi uh, in the mid-90s, I was an assistant account executive making, I think, $24,000 a year. And our driving mission at Saatchi and Saatchi was to do four television ads a year for the Tide brand. That, that was all we focused on, four television ads a year. Maybe there was a print ad here or there or a radio ad, but it was really all about the television ad. Mm-hmm. And you think about that and then compare that to today where you know most brands are not doing television anymore, at least not at the scale that they used to do it. Uh, you have a million digital tactics out there that you can do. And then you have this whole layer of marketing technology that wasn't around back in the 90s. So it just made the job super complex and super challenging. And so if you are someone as a marketer who is uh, what I would call a playbook marketer, you you learn the skills, uh, you figure out how to do marketing, you read, you know, uh, Philip Kotler and Al Reese and all the, all the great marketing books. And then you go into an organization, you say, all right, I got to execute my playbook. You're going to have a lot of trouble today (laughs) because marketing today doesn't resemble a lot of what marketing was. Now, there are a lot of fundamentals and foundational pieces that are still very important. Yes, positioning and messaging are still super important to having effective marketing, but the function has become incredibly complicated to navigate. Uh, Now, fortunately for me, I'm someone who likes constant change. And I think I am a little bit ADD in that in that sense where uh, if I was doing the same thing at every job for my entire career, I would be very bored. Uh, so marketing has been a great career path for me because it's always changing and always dynamic. So if you embrace it, it's a lot of fun. But I also see how it's very scary for a lot of people because you essentially have to constantly be learning and reinvent yourself every few, every few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you go on to write, the, the pressure on marketing is greater than ever because there is a belief held by many executives that all marketing investments should be clearly measurable. You need to show an immediate ROI on every single penny spent. <laughs> but then you go on to write that, and I want you to explain this, in your experience, marketing has always been about the long game. I think that's very true. So it's interesting when you think about the tenure of the marketing leader in organizations. And it's always somewhere between uh, you know, 18 to 24 months. So usually less than two years. And that's pretty challenging. If you think about it, uh, an organization will hire a marketing leader. Uh, it takes six months for that marketing leader to kind of assess what's going on. Then it takes another six to nine months to start really implementing your program. And at the end of it, you basically you get fired <laughs> and before you get have time for anything really to work. Yeah, it's like uh, a bad science fiction movie. <laughs> and, you know, growing up working on a brand like Tide Laundry Detergent, that was really the, the first big brand I worked on. Uh, Tide was not a brand that 
grew up in six months, right? That gained the awareness they had overnight. I mean, that was a, a brand that took years and years and years to resonate within the minds of consumers. And so I've always known that effective marketing is something that takes a lot of time to do right. You know, mm-hmm. really getting a brand in someone's mind and owning a position is not a six-month endeavor. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, what what I think is important is that you, as a marketer, you do have to be a lot faster now than you maybe could be in the past. You have to get stuff done uh, immediately. You have to show immediate results in some way. But a lot of what I think marketers have to do, and this is a common mistake I see a lot of marketing leaders make, is that they take on big initiatives first that aren't going to show results over a long period of time. And, and that's a problem And you know, because the, the worst thing that could happen to a marketer is they join a company and six months later, you start hearing buzz that, what has that person been doing? I, you know, I'm not seeing anything out of that person. And that's when you're really on a path uh, to, to be walked out the door. Um, a strategy that I think is important for marketing leaders is to show immediate results through what I call a quick win strategy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I write a lot about this in the book. Find things that are quick wins in the organization and knock them out. Because um, those things may not be the most important things to do. Um, those things may not have the biggest impact on the business, but what they will do is they will build your credibility with inside the organization. And having credibility is critical if you want to do marketing over the long term. So you have to build your credibility, show you can get the quick wins done, and then that will give you uh, really the permission to go do those bigger things that are going to move the business over the long term. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that because you write in the book that there's two essential skills for modern marketers. And one of them is uh, flexibility, which I'd like to talk about. And the other is focus. Uh, but you write, it's not just about being focused. <laughs> it's also about choosing the right things to focus on. Could you talk about the uh, your approach as it's written on page 23 uh, where on a piece of paper, you write down two statements to, to help you focus, to help a new marketer focus. Talk about those. Those are, those are really simple to say, but uh, I think enormously impactful. Right. I, I think I, I like to call this uh, the, the fill-in-the-blanks exercise, right? Um, because <laughs> Which exactly is why right. it appealed to me, yeah. <laughs> right. like, I, I, everything for me comes down to kind of like third grade level um, kind of problems that you would do in school. Uh-huh. Um, but if you have to really focus in a field like marketing, uh, you have to make it very, very simple. So uh, what I try to do is say, okay, what is the problem we're trying to solve in the organization? Like what is the biggest problem we're trying to solve. And in, in a lot of organizations, especially organizations that are uh, fast growing, uh, the biggest problem you're trying to solve is, is revenue growth, right? Um, you know, m- every small to mid-sized company is like, how do we grow faster? And so I like to do an exercise where I say, okay, we are not growing revenue faster because of blank. Like, 
Like, what is, what is that blank? Um, and it could be a variety of things. It could be uh, we're missing a key product feature that um, is, is causing us to lose deals. It could be uh, we have low awareness. It could be the sales guys are uh, not getting enough at bats. Uh, and so you have to figure out what is the number one reason that you're not growing revenue fast enough. And once you identify that, that's where you put 100% of your mind share into solving that one problem. And -hmm. when you do that, you'd be amazed at how it clears out all of the other stuff that's distracting you. So uh, it clears out the, oh, we got to, we got to update the, the header image on our Twitter page or, oh, hey, we got to implement this new uh, MarTech solution that we got. No, (laughs) because if that is not a direct line to growing your revenue faster, you know, kick that can down the road Mm -hmm, (laughs) and mm -hmm. focus on how do I get my sales guys more at bats? How do I work with my product team to fill the gaps uh, and and get the revenue going faster? Mm -hmm. That is the most important thing for marketers and and where, where marketing fails oftentimes or where marketing leaders get caught is that they cannot draw the straight line between the work they are doing and the impact on the business Mm -hmm. in a way that an executive could figure it out. Like you can't go to a CEO and brag about my my one percent click through rate on display ads. Yeah, <laughs> right. Marketers, please don't do that. Because what's the CEO going to say? The CEO is going to say, "Well, what happened to the other ninety nine percent of people who didn't click? <laughs> right. You're fired." Yeah. Uh, so so you you have to be really smart as a marketing leader today and figure out all right how do I do the most important things that are going to have the most impact on solving the big biggest problems in our business and driving the results that we need. Yes. And the second question, we are losing deals because. Right. So that could be uh, another big problem that you have. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, you're not growing revenue faster. We're losing deals because. Uh, and, and focusing in on, okay, why are we losing deals? Does it have to do with our brand awareness in the market? If it does, that's what we have to fix. Uh, is there a product gap? Are our sales guys not trained well enough? Mm-hmm. Are we just not getting in the deal for some reason because we're not on the short list? You know, those are the kind of things you have to get down to. And if you figure out that blank, it, it, it makes it very easy in some ways to tell you what you should be focusing on as a marketing team. Yes. So just to say it again, because I liked it so much, we are not growing revenue faster because, fill in the blank, we are losing deals because, period. Just focus on on those two. So again, back to the basics, though. You write that the truth is that most marketers are still struggling with the basics. Explain what you mean there. It's really interesting. Uh, I talked to a lot of marketers and they're talking about, oh, we just, uh, we're ripping out the, the marketing automation system. We're switching from, you know, Eloqua to Marketo or we're, um, we just went and bought this cool tool or we're doing this really interesting uh, retargeting approach. And I think that's all great. But uh, oftentimes they're missing the core of the business, which is around, do you have the right message? Uh, do you have a message that's resonating with the users? Do you have uh, a website that is communicating that message effectively? Are you strong in the search engines? Um, so, so what happens oftentimes is that marketers will go from step A to step D 
without doing, you know, B and C, right? Because, you know, the, the way I think about marketing today is that you have uh, a very powerful way to communicate your brand oftentimes, and, and that, is, that is your website. So, so when I started in marketing, there were no websites really. Mm-hmm. Um, but today you have your website and your website is a, a combination of uh, a great advertising medium. Uh, and it's also a virtual sales rep to some extent. Mm-hmm. And so I look at your website as, as a key place for focus to make sure that's the place you are telling your story and you're doing it in, in a, as effective a way as possible. And I am constantly amazed uh, with a lot of big brands at how poor their websites are. Mm. Um, old screenshots, messaging is outdated. Uh, even like weird things like they don't have a favicon in the, in the tab. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just think it, it's interesting that a lot of marketers are onto these very advanced tactics when the basics like their website aren't really sufficient. So when I talk about the basics, I, I really think it's about that, that virtual sales rep, that virtual storefront that you have, which is your website. Um, Making sure that website is working as hard as you can to tell the story of your brand and convince a buyer why they should do business with you. Mm -hmm. Now, now the website is important, but also how people get to the website is equally important, which Mm -hmm. is about your SEO. Right. And I know you've had authors on your show a lot talking about SEO and I'm not an SEO expert, but I can't go into it. But people shouldn't be afraid of that. It's easier than... It, it, it's it, it's been cloaked in in uh, wizardry and black magic for years, and it shouldn't be. It, it it definitely shouldn't be because it's really you know if you are relevant for the category you're competing in, uh, over time you should get to a high ranking on on Google. <laughs> it's it's really not that hard, but uh, you know, but you have to realize, and and one of the one of the things I've always liked to do with. Um, you know, when, when we, when I would be at a business and we'd acquire a new client, I always like to go and do a, a post acquisition, you know, interview with that client and just say, Hey, how did you, how'd you find out about us? How'd you find out about our business? What, what, um, what pieces of research did you do to kind of learn about us and, and go through the process? And so I was at this company called QA Symphony and I was meeting with a lot of our uh, recently signed clients and I asked this question and they all said the exact same thing to me. They said, I Googled um, best software testing tools because QA Symphony was in the software testing space, best software testing tools. And it had a, a lot of websites that, that ranked the top software testing tools. And I clicked on all these articles and you were on the, every list. And so you made the short list. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that simple. So if we had not done the work to actually get on those lists, we would have missed a big opportunity to influence these people as they're doing their research before they're reaching out uh, to to go through a formal evaluation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some basic things that uh, that can be done, and even just getting started on some of these can have a dramatic effect. But there's a great line in your book where you write, "If you're weak online, you'll be weak offline," and that worked for me in a couple ways. One of them is that there's going to be a perception that you're inept or that you're not going to have a good customer experience, meaning weak offline. People make a subconscious decision. You know, are, how easy are they making this to 
for me to find what I'm looking for and to, to communicate the right information. So if you're weak online, you'll be weak offline, or you'll be considered weak, and they might not even uh, want to reach out to you. Now, moving on, you have a section titled Using Core Values to Nurture Your Company Brand, and then you write, you might start reading this chapter thinking, Jeff, what do the company's core values have to do with marketing? And To which I would add, yeah, what are you, some kind of arts and crafts party planner who works in the make it pretty department? <laughs> Talk about the importance of core values. Well, I think marketing in many ways is the has to be the cultural hub of the organization. Right, uh, the marketing team has the biggest megaphone when it comes to communicating out to the public what the company is all about. And so, if the company does not have defined values, that actually becomes sort of difficult. Uh, and it becomes difficult on a, a couple of levels. One is if you don't know who you are, it's hard to tell other people about you outside the company. Mm-hmm. But also inside the company, if you don't have defined core values. Your people don't know what you're all about. Uh, I I describe it in some ways as being um, as being rudderless, as a, you know, to use a, a, a ship analogy. Um, if people don't understand what you're about, where you're going, it, it's very hard to get them excited about the company. And mm-hmm. so, when I think about core values as an organization, I, I think it's really a, a foundational piece. It's back to that uh, doing the basics right. So when I join a company, uh, one of the things I look for first is say, what what are the core values here? What is our mission vision? Uh, because if we don't have our entire team aligned around you know who we are and where we're going, it's going to be very hard for marketing to do our job. <laughs> and so that's so what I, I expect marketing to have some sort of pixie dust. Go go weave your web, Spider Man. Do that marketing <laughs> thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like go, go tell people about us. Well, who are we? What, what are we telling them? <laughs> or the, the expression I love to hear is, oh, we just need to get the word out. Right. <laughs> what word do we need to get out? Yeah, it's – and it's it, – honestly, it's something that I think a lot of organizations uh, sometimes – you know, they neglect. And why do they neglect core values? Because they're so focused on, hey, we got to build the product and we got to get some revenue in the door and we got to get our sales guys, uh, you know, with leads. And there's there's so many things that go on in a business. And it, it's it's not all about just core values. But if you don't have the core values piece in place, um, you're going to have some challenges. Because again, it's, it's like, when you, um, it's like when you exercise, right? And and if you're really into fitness, everyone knows this. Yeah, you could you could you know work on your biceps all you want, and and it'll be nice to have big biceps. But if your core is is if you don't work on your core and your core is all flabby, that's really what's going to impact your health and fitness, mm-hmm. right? Not your biceps, but your core. Mm-hmm. And I look at core values as as really part of the core of an organization. Right, you got to get it right, and I've even found, and this is something that I think is more recent. Um, you know, with with especially younger employees, if you as an organization don't have strong core values that connect with the employees, and especially you know, kind of younger generation of employees coming up, uh, they're going to leave. Well, you may not even recruit them. Okay, yeah, because employees today, employees today, really want to work for values-driven companies. In fact, uh, many times. When I've interviewed uh, younger employees, 
they've said to me, I've said, you know, why do you want to join Park Mobile? And, and several of them have said to me, uh, because your core values resonated with me, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, which is a fantastic interview answer. <laughs> so yes. if, any, if anyone's interviewing out there, that's one to, to bring up to your interviewee, because it, it does show that um, you are aligned with you know, the mission, vision, and values of the organization that you're uh, trying to get a job at. Right. And this is an enormous section of the book, and like so much of it, it's very practical. But you've even got here the key questions. Like, there's eight questions, and you could spend a, do a half-day workshop just working on these, and I'm going to read them. One, what is important to our company? Two, how do we treat each other? Three, how do we treat our customers? <laughs> Four, what is unique about us? Five, how do we work together? Six, what is the best thing about working here? Seven, what is different about our company compared to others? And eight, what word or words would you use to describe the people at the company? A lot of the information is probably there. And for some reason, this brought to mind what I think was the slogan for McCann Erickson from back in our ad days in New York, which was truth well told. Mm. I thought that was really... uh, that really stuck with me. So I want to read uh, from uh, page 31 here because I want to move on to from core values and talk about brands, okay? Now, this isn't a bunch of BS, folks, but I want you to listen. <laughs> you write, as you're thinking through your overall marketing program, it's important to focus on the brand. In our digital world, there might be a tendency to focus on the array of KPIs to track business success, but if you don't spend time nurturing your brand, it could really drag you down. On the flip side, a strong brand that connects with your target audience can improve all your marketing metrics. (laughs) Explain what you're talking about there, about how that can actually help everything else. Yeah, it's a tendency I see with with modern marketers, especially with uh, the array of, of digital advertising opportunities out there, is that you just totally forget um, the essentials of brand building. Yeah, you know, because you're you're just you're optimizing, you know, display ad after display ad, and you get really excited because the red button works better than the blue button, and saying buy now works better than learn more, and and there's a tendency I think to fall in love with um, all of these kind of fun modern tools that drive uh, what I would think what I would describe as incremental success on campaigns, but. Uh, the the bigger point is what are you saying in those ads? What is the brand that you're trying to build towards? What is the overall messaging that you're putting out into the market? And is that message really resonating with users? And mm-hmm. is it building your brand in the consumer or the customer's mind over time? And this does go back to the basics and the fundamentals of positioning, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's you got to define who you are and the value that you're offering. Um, and you can get into all the fun display ads and all the A-B testing you want. But I always challenge marketers, if you don't have that foundational brand piece, it's going to make your marketing less effective uh, as a whole. And, and I, I saw this at, um, at Park Mobile when I started there. We had uh, what I would describe as uh, you know, a fairly weak brand, but we had good KPIs. Right, we were growing very fast, mm-hmm. but once we got the brand right, we saw the brand, you know, exponentially grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did a lot of work on the design and the logo and the tagline uh, and the website and making sure the brand was really humming. 
Mm-hmm. And once we did that, we saw what was, uh, you know, a 20% year over year increase go to a 40% year over year increase because the brand was so much stronger, building such a stronger position in the mind of the consumer. So while, while you can, the tendency I think today is, Hey, just, just, throw a lot of stuff out there and see what sticks. We need more leads. <laughs> you you got to get you got to get the brand right uh, mm-hmm. because in the best case when you get the brand right people start to start to kind of you know really become a fan. And and that's what really marketing should deliver. It's not just hey I want to get a bunch of clicks or a bunch of leads that are coming inbound, but I want people to have a certain feeling about our company and our offering. Mm-hmm. And I want them to, to to feel good about doing business with us. And and it's amazing with with Park Mobile for example. I mean, we're in an industry that generally people hate like paying for parking. But I'm constantly amazed when I wear my Park Mobile shirt and I'm out and about, people coming up to me and saying how much they like the Park Mobile app. <laughs> hey, I love paying for parking with the Park Mobile app. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's kind of funny to think about that, right? But that's the power of having a strong brand is that you're able to build this affinity with people that goes beyond just the tactical clicks and the tactical metrics um, that will help the business overall over time. Yes. So I want to move on to the part about how to have a career that doesn't suck. Uh, that's of great interest to, to all listeners. But before we do that, I want you, uh, what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play a clip from this American television show Seinfeld and ask you, <laughs> what does this have to do with having a career that doesn't suck and you? Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Every instinct I have in every aspect of life, be it something to wear, something to eat, it's often wrong. <laughs> Everyone. Tuna on toast, coleslaw, cup of coffee. Yeah. No, 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 wait a minute. I always have tuna on toast. Nothing's ever worked out for me with tuna on toast. <laughs> I want the complete opposite of tuna on toast. Chicken salad on rye. Untoasted with a side of potato salad and a cup of tea. <laughs> well, there's no telling what can happen from this. You know, chicken salad's not the opposite of tuna. Salmon's the opposite of tuna, because salmon swim against the current and the tuna swim with it. Good for the tuna. Uh, George, you know that woman just looked at you. So what? What am I supposed to do? Go talk to her. Elaine, bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents don't approach strange women. Well, here's your chance to try the opposite. Instead of tuna salad and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to them. Yeah, I should do the opposite. I should. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. Yes, I will do the opposite. I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day. So now I will do the opposite and I will do something. Excuse me, uh, I couldn't help but notice that you were looking in my direction. (laughs) Oh, yes, I was. You just ordered the same exact lunch as me. (laughs) My name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with my parents. 
Victoria, hi. <laughs> okay, so listeners should know that she was extremely uh, attractive. Now, what does that have to do with uh, Jeff Perkins and how to have a career that doesn't necessarily suck? Well, all of life's great wisdom obviously comes from Seinfeld. Right. And so I tell the story in the book at a, a particularly low point in, in my career where I was, um, you know, I had a job at a, a good company and I was, um, but I was a bit stuck because it was in one of these positions where I'd, I'd really just been focused on my career and on my doing a good job. I wasn't focused on building a personal brand or building a network. I was just, I want to do a really good job. And I was heads down and I got to a point where I really was stuck at this company. I, there was no path up for me. Uh, now the challenge was I was, uh, I was a marketing manager. So that was my title, but I've been at this company for five years and they kept increasing my pay without promoting me. So I was a very overpaid marketing manager. And when you're an overpaid marketing manager, that creates some challenges because when you're talking to recruiters, you say, hey, I want to go interview for a VP of marketing job. They say, no, Jeff, you can't be a VP of marketing. You're a marketing manager. That's your title. I see it on your resume. And they said, okay, well, um, how about this? How about I interview as a marketing manager, but find me an opportunity where there'd be kind of a chance for me to move up in an organization. They say, okay, you're going to, I'll get you some opportunities as a marketing manager. What's your salary range? And I told him my salary range is like, you can't make that as a marketing manager. That's crazy. And so I was in this total catch 22 where I couldn't get a VP job because I didn't have a VP title. I couldn't get a marketing manager job because I got paid too much. And I sat there, I was like, wow, I'm totally screwed here. I don't, I can't do anything. I'm just going to, I guess, ride out the rest of my career at this company and be unhappy. And I, I remember watching that Seinfeld episode around the time that this was going on. And it just sparked something. I said, you know, I have to do the opposite. What have I been doing? I've just been heads down trying to, trying to, you know, do a good job uh, at work, but I need to think about me and, and my personal brand and positioning myself because the, the hard lesson I learned is that if you don't define yourself, uh, everybody else will. And what I realized is that people were defining me by one thing, the title on my resume, marketing manager. That's all they knew. They didn't know that I'd been at this company for five years. I had uh, built a team and was delivering all these results. They just saw on a resume, marketing manager. And, well, and, and you really, are bald as well. <laughs> I, I am bald too. A bald, bald. Uh, at one point, I did live with my parents, so, <laughs> but, but not, not when I was a marketing manager. Okay. So I, was, I realized, though, that I was like, I have to do something here. I have to define myself. And, and so I, I spent an afternoon one weekend going through uh, Indeed profiles for CMOs and VPs of marketing. Because mm -hmm. I really wanted to figure out, all right, what, what do companies look for in these positions? And I was amazed to see that everything companies were looking for were things that I had a lot of experience in. And I had great stories I could tell about. And I said, wow, these companies are actually looking for someone like me, but how do I get the at bat mm -hmm. <laughs> if I'm a marketing manager? That was the thing. And I said, well, maybe I have to stop thinking of myself as a marketing manager and start thinking of myself as a marketing executive who's done a lot of stuff in their career and going and telling that story. And so I started writing a blog 
and, and I committed, I like once a week for about a year, I wrote a blog post just about things related to professional development, marketing, uh, and, and I just started putting it out there. And then I started uh, applying to speak at every marketing event I could find. And, and I was I was getting on the stage and people would say, oh, he's a pretty good presenter. And then other marketing events started calling me and saying, hey, we, we saw you at this conference. Come speak at that conference. And, and you know, Doug, there's no shortage of marketing conferences to speak at. <laughs> right. uh, and, and so suddenly um, now I have a blog and um, speaking at marketing conferences. And then uh, Advertising Age magazine reaches out to me. They say, hey, we, we saw you at this conference and we read some of your blogs. Would you like to contribute to Advertising Age? And this all happened with like in a span of, of six months when I really decided like, hey, I have to build my personal brand. And, and so I just, I'd made time for it and I made sure, yes, I was still doing a good job uh, at my company, but I was making time for my personal brand. And really after about six months, suddenly the phone started to ring mm-hmm. and I was getting jobs. I couldn't even imagine uh, I would be able to, to be qualified for or up for. And, and I, I, you know, people were saying, oh, you, you have a marketing position open? Oh, you got to talk to Jeff Perkins. He's one of the top marketing leaders in town. Mm-hmm. And it was all because I, I took a little bit of time and, and put a little bit of effort towards my personal brand and defining myself as a marketing executive and not letting all these hiring managers or recruiters define me by the words on my resume. Mm-hmm. So that was the opposite for, for me. Was, right. Was you ordered really- chicken salad. On rye, not toasted, uh, potato salad, and tea. Well, you mentioned um, the industry events you started going going to, and I, I have to ask you about this one thing. It's not often that the host of the Marketing Book Podcast gets to offer fashion tips to listeners, okay? <laughs> and I noticed on page 16 that you talk about uh, industry events and what seems to be the official digital marketer uniform for guys? Would would you please explain what that is? So every event you would go to, uh, every dude is dressed the exact same. They all are wearing jeans and a button down shirt and a blazer. Every single one, and like some some nice brown leather shoes usually. And and, and I used to joke. I said, well, that's that's the new uniform of the the male digital marketer. Uh, <laughs> Right. So if, if anyone wants to be uh, a digital marketer out there and you're you're a dude, you know, just show up to our events in jeans and a button down and a blazer and you will fit right in. And maybe if, if you wear glasses, just make sure they're more of the thick rim glasses, because uh, that, that also seems to be, uh, you know, part of the, the trend. But oh, okay. it, it is funny. Uh, it's because because marketers generally, uh, I think, um, you know, maybe get a reputation for being, you know, creative and cutting edge. And, and, and then you go to these conferences and everyone's basically dressed exactly the same. It's like IBM in the, in the fifties, it's the blue suit and red tie and white shirt of, of the new generation of marketers. Right. Well, now earlier you mentioned a great question uh, for an interview, and I want to ask you a little bit more about that. You write that one of the most common questions you get from younger marketing professionals is what do I need to do or say in a job interview. And what worked for me really well, I thought, throughout my career is they'd say, what are you looking for in a career? And I would say, well, two things, really. Indoor work and no heavy lifting. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that wasn't a good idea. But what do you recommend that people say when, you know, when they're on a job interview? I think for me, the biggest things that I look for are not necessarily about what you say, not not the the specific words, but 
I want to really gauge your passion. And so I ask two questions normally in an interview. Uh, one is, uh, tell me about a project that you worked on that, you know, were, that you consider your greatest accomplishment. Mm-hmm. And then I ask them to talk about uh, something you've done where you failed or you weren't as successful as you'd hoped to be in your career. And I think those are really good questions. And I really don't care what they did or what they failed at. Uh, what I what I really look for is the energy they bring to those questions. So if you are telling me about your biggest career achievement, the project that you feel is better than everything else you've worked on, and you're talking in a monotone voice and you're not excited about it at all, that's going to tell me a lot about you and your passion uh, and th- that you bring to the job. Mm-hmm. Or if you're talking about somewhere where you failed and, and it doesn't totally bum you out, <laughs> that you did fail in this way and and you can't even articulate kind of a, a good learning or takeaway uh, from it, that's going to tell me a lot about you. So it it's not as much about the story or having the best story, but it's about, it's about, are you really geeked up to talk about this, you know, optimization of your campaign that you worked on that drove, you know, 0.5% increase of click-through rates and it was the greatest thing ever? Um, or are you so depressed because you you were pitching this business and you thought you were going to win and you didn't win and it just oh, it was crushing to you? Um, that's what I look for because that really shows me not just that you're someone that's going to come in and, and do the job, but that you're going to care and that you're going to bring passion to the job. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the most important thing when I'm looking at candidates, people who are going to be all in and people who are going to just totally, you know, in the case of Park Mobile, we, we talk about this idea of bleeding green, right? Because <laughs> that's mm-hmm. our brand color. Um, but that's what, that's what I like uh, because, you know, we, we do spend a lot of time at work and it's an important part of our lives. So in your job, you want to be surrounded by people who are going to be passionate and who are going to care. And if you don't have that, it's going to make work, I think, a lot less fun, a lot less interesting. And overall, I think companies that don't have that passion are going to be a lot less successful. Yes. There was uh, something about uh, brands in your book where you talked about, would you want to take a six-hour ride with your brand? (laughs) And the same applies to uh, someone that you're looking at making a coworker. But I guess more importantly, I, if I'm not mistaken, Park Mobile is hiring right now, right? We are. We yeah. are. You can go to parkmobile.io slash careers and see all the, the great opportunities that we have. Uh, we had to slow it down a little bit during COVID, obviously. Um, sure. You know, when you're in the parking industry and, um, and a global pandemic happens, it, it inevitably will slow down our revenue growth a little bit. But, uh, you know, things have turned around and we're, we're back on the upswing now. So we're, we're definitely building out our team a lot more. Um, we have some great, you know, strategic plans for the year. So yeah, we're looking to hire top talent. So uh, definitely check us out. There you go. Well, if they're marketing book podcast listeners, you know, they're, they're, they're self-starters, they're, uh, they're, you know, lifelong learners, and they're very good looking people. <laughs> so, you know, if somebody mentions to you that they listen to the marketing book podcast, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to hurt them. So anyway, just a little career, uh, career advice from the host here. Um, but you've got it quite a bit more in the book about not only the, the, the story of your uh, business going through COVID and which lessons you learned, but also about interviewing and what to ask and what to consider when you're looking at making a change. But I want to move on to uh, uh, another section of the book on page 106 titled, 
think the sales team doesn't get it, maybe you don't get it. Explain uh, what you mean there and, and, and tell the story. Yeah, I worked at uh, a company here in Atlanta called Auto Trader for, for many years. And when I started at Auto Trader, uh, I was in charge of, of B2B marketing there. And so Auto Trader is a big consumer brand. So there was a big team that was really focused on uh, consumer advertising and digital advertising to consumers to get them to go to the Auto Trader website and shop for cars. Uh, I was on the other side of the house where I was really focused on, you know, the people that were paying us money, mostly the car dealers. And then the sales team that was out there working with those car dealers to sell in our solutions. And so when I started, one of the things I noticed was that there was a real, there was a real wall between marketing and sales. And uh, the the CMO at Auto Trader didn't get along with the the chief revenue officer, and it was a well-known uh, that, that they didn't like each other. And so that it kind of made my job very hard because uh, my client, in a lot of ways, was the sales team. Like I needed to uh, do marketing to, that would help the sales team do their job. And I knew that I couldn't be successful unless I really dove in and got to understand the, the world of sales. And, and I remember... Uh, at one point I was talking to one of our sales guys and we were kind of, you know, just, just chatting about, you know, his thoughts on the marketing team and the work we were doing. And he said to me point blank, he's like, you know what, frankly, you guys just don't get it. And I, I think he was right. I, I, I don't think we got it because the way our sales team was constructed, they were, um, there were about 1500 of them. They were all in a local market every day they get up they're in their car, they're going dealership to dealership, having meetings with clients. And, you know, we're all sitting back in Atlanta in our corporate office, just, you know, you having coffee and going to happy hours. <laughs> we're not dealing with the challenges that they were dealing with. And so I said, okay, well, help me get it. And he said, well, come, come ride along with me. And so I went and rode, rode along with him. Uh, and then I went and rode along with a bunch of our other sales guys. And then I had our whole marketing team say, hey, you guys have to spend one week a month in the field and you have to go ride around along with the sales guys. And suddenly, amazingly, you know, when you put marketing in a position where they actually see what happens in the field, we start changing the way we're doing marketing, <laughs> right? Because we're like, wow, uh, I had no idea sitting in the corporate office that these were the challenges we were facing, that these were the objections that our sales guys are facing. And so getting into the field was just invaluable for us in starting to get it. And then the other thing we did is said, okay, we can't do this alone. We need to partner with the sales guys. So then we created a sales advisory board. So once a quarter, we would bring 10 of the top salespeople into the office and we have a, a you know, a three-day work session. And we just talk about, you know, what's working, what's not, what messaging do you need? What about this collateral? What tools can we get you guys? And it was invaluable. And Two ways. One, just helping us, you know, create a better marketing program that was going to support the sales team. But two, uh, bringing the relationship together uh, between sales and marketing. Because at the end of the day, if if the sales guys aren't successful, um, I don't know how marketing could claim it's successful. You know, we we got to we got to work together to achieve the results we're looking for for the business. And so that was a great lesson for me in that um, sales and marketing really have to be attached at the hip. And in fact, I've been in other companies as a as a marketing leader where I actually ran sales. 
And that was incredible because as, as a marketing leader who's running sales, uh, you can't afford to have misalignment uh, bec- because you have a quota. <laughs> Buck stops with you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so where I've seen organizations really be successful uh, is when that relationship is very strong and collaborative. And then there's daily interactions between marketing and sales. And where I see organizations less successful is when, you know, you have a wall between marketing and sales and they don't talk. And so I'm a big believer that marketing and sales have to be just totally aligned. And I think, I think some of the industry statistics bear it out that companies with strong marketing and sales alignment perform at a higher level than those that don't have strong marketing and sales alignment. Yes. I know of one study uh, by serious decisions that showed that companies with higher sales and marketing alignment have faster growth and higher profitability. And that uh, was discussed uh, quite a bit in a book called Aligned to Achieve uh, that was on the show a couple of years ago. Terrific book about sales and marketing alignment. I'll include a link to it in the yeah, I'll, I'll And I'll make one more point. You know, just, I, I totally agree with that because I, you know, I saw it firsthand. So when I worked at a company called PGI, and at PGI, that's the company where I ran you know, sales and, and marketing. And so I had a, a digital marketing team, and they were doing a lot of uh, Google AdWords every day. And then I had a sales team that was really responding to the leads that were coming in from a lot of that advertising. And in the past, what we would do is we would have a quarterly business review where uh, the marketing team would get up and they'd say, oh, look at these great results we're driving for the business. Look at that. Our our clicks are up. Our cost per acquisition is down. We're crushing it. All right. So the marketing team goes. And then the sales guy gets up there and says, well, we have no pipeline. The leads are bad. You know, we're not going to hit our number this year. So, So you have two worlds there, right? Like marketing thinks they're crushing it and sales is saying they're not going to hit their number. Something is totally broken in the process. And I realized, I said, we are we are just doing a terrible job for the business now because it takes us a whole quarter of work to figure out that what marketing is doing is not working. <laughs> a whole quarter went by. So I said, here's what we're going to do going forward. Every day, our director of digital marketing is going to pick up the phone and call our director of sales and say, how are the leads that are coming in today? Every day, we're going to do that. And they started this process where every day they had a daily check-in and they tried different campaigns. And if they saw campaigns were driving better leads, suddenly they put more money into those campaigns. If they saw campaigns were driving no leads or poor quality leads, they take money out of those campaigns and then put that money into the campaigns that were working. So what happens is you have real-time optimization based on actual results. <laughs> and, and it was incredible. And you think about back to company spend and driving more revenue and, and reducing cost. You don't do that if you're doing a quarterly business review and you're realizing after three months that you just wasted all this money. You do that in real time every day by enabling this connection with sales and, and marketing teams. So so I think it's just so important for those teams to, to collaborate. And I even think, you know, I think as we move forward, uh, you know, you're going to see more CMOs with sales responsibility. You're going to see more CROs with marketing responsibility. I think that role is becoming um, one that's really coming together in a, a way maybe that it hadn't in the past. Yes, and we can cut down on people saying things like, the leads are weak. <laughs> no, you're weak. <laughs> no, you're weak. Yes. So uh, but before we wrap up, I just want to ask two other things from the book, and that had to do with getting along with your CFO and your CEO. Just really invaluable uh, for marketers, but also you know a lot of the CEOs that I talk to. Um, 
at page 108, you write that the chief financial officer is an unlikely ally for marketers. Explain why uh, the CFO can become your ally, and can you share with us also some of the things you should never, ever say to your CFO? (laughs) Yeah, so I'll share a pet peeve, because I know there are a lot of marketing people that listen to this podcast. Never be at a marketing conference and and degrade the job of the CFO or call him the the CF no. Uh-huh. I hear that a lot of marketing conferences. Oh, you know, the CF no. The bean counter. Uh, that is not going to get you anywhere <laughs> within an organization, <laughs> especially at a executive level. I have found that marketing can actually get more money <laughs> from the CFO than they initially probably thought by being very clear with the finance team about what you're doing and the impact it's having on the business. Now, uh, in some cases, marketing likes to be a bit of a black box, right? Uh, hey, we're we have a trust the process, right? Oh, um, and, you know, we know what we're doing, uh, but that's one of the things you should never say. You, you should just, never just trust say. me on this. You have to trust me, <laughs> yeah. or, or you know, uh, n- oh. Come on, there's no way to track ROI on that investment. You know, um, you, you know, you have to spend money to make money, mm. <laughs> or, or like we're spending on brand awareness. You really can't measure that, right? I, I mean, those those are things that your analytical CFO is just going to it's just going to go in one ear out the other. He's just going to think you're an idiot. Well, and it's playing uh, to what their perception might already be. It, it, exactly, CFOs, financial people in general believe marketing leaders just throw money in the fireplace, <laughs> right? I mean, that it's kind of how they're wired. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, there's a big line item for marketing here. What's it doing? Well, and that's what makes them effective CFOs, I would argue. It, 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 that's exactly what they should do. <laughs> that's their job is to be the good stewards of, of company funds. Now, how do you build the relationship with the CFO? Well, mm. what do marketers have a lot of today that maybe we haven't had a lot of in the past? We have a lot of data. Mm-hmm. What do CFOs like? CFOs love data. So if marketing could get out of its own way and share the data with the CFO and the and the finance team, you would be amazed how receptive they would be. Mm-hmm. And, and now, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Maybe the metrics aren't that good, but you don't win any points by being secretive or or being less than transparent. So, you know, our goal with the finance team uh, at companies I've worked at is always to educate them on on marketing, show them what we're doing, show them what's working, what's not working, uh, but really bring them into our tent. And I'll, uh, my my favorite story of working with a finance team it happened at, at PGI you know we were we were super transparent on what we were doing and we were seeing really good results and so i remember it was the end of one quarter and we were we were a little bit under on some expense line items within other parts of the company marketing was kind of on budget but other parts of the company had it spent less than they thought they would spend so there was about a, a, a you know i think a couple hundred thousand dollars sitting out there that finance was thinking well maybe we should just put it to the bottom line but then the finance lead came to me and said, hey, we have $300,000. Um, do you guys think you can use that in some of your digital programs, the ones that are really working? Yes. <laughs> like, but only like, because they understood what you were doing. They understood what we were doing. They understood it was returning. Uh, you know, There was a return on investment over time. And they trusted us. Yeah. And they saw it as an investment rather than an expense. But yes. You have to build it, that trust. 
you got to build that trust. And so I I think for anyone who wants to be a, you know, a marketing leader, especially a a CMO or a vice president of marketing, you have to embrace the finance team. You have to really show that um, you understand the business on a, uh, you know, on a level of KPIs and metrics that they will understand. And if you do that, I think the chances are that you're you'll be pleasantly surprised on your CFO's willingness to to you know allocate company funds your way. Absolutely. Now, Jeff Perkins has had a long, uh, interesting, successful career as a marketer, and Jeff Perkins is now a CEO. So I want to ask <laughs> you to explain or expand upon the following from page 112. As marketers, we often don't do ourselves any favors when it comes to the CEO. <laughs> <laughs> Please explain. You've looked at life from both sides now. Yeah, I think you have to look at the CEO and, and realize that this is the person responsible for the entire business, everything about the business, all the people within the business. It's a very it's a very hard job. It's a challenging job. It's a high-pressure job. And the kind of people that rise into that role, it doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> they are driven type A intellectually curious kind of people. And so as a CMO, you really have to treat that relationship. uh, It's the most important relationship you have within the organization, uh, right? Your your CEO and building trust with the CEO. Um, So I think there are a lot of things that uh, marketers need to do with the CEO you know, to, to make sure that the relationship is strong. Um, you know, I, I talk about a, a few things. One, setting very clear expectations on what you can do as the marketing leader, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that if a CEO is coming in and hires you and says, hey, I need you to, to, to you know, triple the awareness of the business in the next six months, um, you know, I'm not saying don't take that job, but you're going to have to set expectations that that may not be possible given the small budget you're working with. So setting clear expectations around what you're doing, what the impact to the business will be. Um, Educating the CEO on marketing is critical. So a lot of CEOs come up through an operations strategy or finance track. They don't come through the marketing track. Um, So making sure that the CEO understands as much about marketing as as he can is going to be an important part of your job as a marketing leader, making sure that you're being very clear. And generally CEOs are, again, intellectually very curious. So it's something that if you are the teacher of marketing to the CEO, that will strengthen the relationship. Uh, Another thing that I think CEOs often do uh, within organizations is uh, they they like to tell you what to do, (laughs) right? They're the leader of the business. They'll tell you what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, What I see successful marketing leaders do, though, is they take those tactical directives and then they transform them into uh, objectives. So you're telling me to do an advertising campaign, but what you're really saying to me is your objective is to accomplish X, Y, or Z. So making sure you're not just doing what the CEO tells you to do, uh, but you're actually uh, taking their inputs and developing smart objectives based on those inputs. Uh, I think, you know, you know, being um, being very quantitative in your conversations with the CEO, CEOs are you know probably less sizzle, more steak kind mm-hmm. of uh, people. Um, you know, making sure you're you're sharing both the good and the bad. You don't want to go to your CEO and just you know tell them all the good stuff, but from neglect to tell them the the ten challenges you're having. And CEOs generally, from my experience, um, they don't care as much about 
things that aren't working. They care more about what you're doing to fix the things aren't working. So, mm-hmm. so that's very important. And then probably the last thing that, that marketers really need to do, I think, is stay on the CEO's radar. Um, too often, uh, marketing maybe isn't the priority for the organization. And so the CEO and the CMO aren't meeting on a on a uh, you know every week or every other week. Uh, as the marketing leader, you really got to work to stay in front of the CEO to make sure that uh, they understand what you're working on. Because if you if they don't see value in what you're doing, uh, and they're not clear on you know all the projects you're working on, over time that's going to really hurt you and diminish you within the organization, and uh, potentially is the reason why uh, the CMO sometimes has the shortest tenure in the C-suite. So this is just some of the things that uh, I think marketing leaders need to do the work effectively with the CEO. Because you know if you get that relationship right. Uh, I believe that the marketer, uh, the marketing leader in the organization really can be, you know, one of the top trusted partners in the executives team for the CEO. So it's an important relationship. You got to invest in it. You got to be transparent uh, and you have to really work to build that relationship over time. Absolutely. Let me just conclude with this one quote. The most important thing to share with your CEO are the marketing metrics related to business growth. You need to get past the vanity metrics. <laughs> Show how your marketing program is driving more leads that are converting into pipeline for the business. Make sure the CEO understands the ROI on the marketing investments the company is making. So Jeff, if readers took only one thing away from how not to suck at marketing, what would you hope it would be? <laughs> I think it ties into that last point that you were making about the the CEOs and what they need. But I, I really think the key thing is to be able to draw a straight line between what marketing is doing and the impact on the business. Draw that straight line between what marketing is doing and the impact on the business. As straight if, as you can. Yeah. And if you can't do that, you got to look at what you're working on. <laughs> And you got to figure out, all right, how can I work on different things that are going to make an impact on the business? And by impact, I mean something that's driving the company results, not just brand awareness, not just uh, better clicks on a display ad, but things like revenue, things like increasing the pipeline for the sales guys, increasing quality leads. Mm. Those are the things that marketing has to show that they're impacting. And if you're not, you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to be at risk. And so I really think marketers today need to, to look at everything that's on their plate and all of these shiny objects out there and get rid of anything that's not driving a direct impact to the business. Amen. Amen. Well said. Let's give the listener one thing to do today after they finish this, uh, listening to this uh, interview that uh, could put in action one of the ideas that is either in your book or, or one that we've talked about. You know, one of the things uh, I really believe, and I think I write a lot in the book about careers, and I think there's a very practical advice in the book around the LinkedIn profile. And we haven't talked about it that much, but mm-hmm. I, I do think the LinkedIn profile is is often very neglected <laughs> by professionals. Um, and I often say to people, hey, if your LinkedIn profile looks like your resume, you are doing it wrong. Yes. <laughs> you are doing it wrong. And so I would say, and actually, if anyone wants to go to my website, how not to suck at marketing.com, I took a, a chapter from the book and I just put it on the website and it's called LinkedIn Tips. 
And it's what I consider the essentials to building a great LinkedIn profile. Because if you think about your resume, it's all these bullet points that are like, oh, drove revenue 20% here. Yeah. it's it's written a very specific way to get through uh, HR recruiters, and it's it's not written like people talk, right? Um, LinkedIn, on the other hand, gives you a chance to tell your story and to position yourself. And so, if there's one thing that I hope people do after they read the book is they go in and they really study their LinkedIn profile, and they build it in a way where they're able to use it as kind of the portfolio for their personal brand. Because it gives you amazing tools. I mean, if you go to my LinkedIn profile, I have all kinds of videos and podcasts and work samples. And I, I tell the narrative story of, of my career. So someone who's looking at me understands, uh, you know, oh, I understand why they made this career move. And oh, mm-hmm. they, there's a gap here, but they went back to business school. It's a very, very clear way to communicate everything about you as, as a professional. And if there's one thing you have to do, though, it's you have to make sure that in the headline, you just don't make the headline your job title. Mm-hmm. Marketing <laughs> uh, manager. Because, yeah, because the, the headline is critical because that's that's your value proposition. That's your tagline to people that are searching on LinkedIn. So if, if your t- tagline is uh, product manager... Uh, that's not going to be that interesting to people unless they're really looking for a product manager. Mm-hmm. But if your tagline is experienced product leader, driving innovative solutions, uh, you know, and all around nice guy, all around nice guy. Exactly. But <laughs> wasn't but that the, on yours? It, it, it is on mine. It, it's been on mine from, I think that was from the very beginning of LinkedIn. I've always had that as, um, as kind of part of my headline. Uh, but, but I, I really think people should look at their LinkedIn profile, um, and take a, take a really kind of a hatchet to it and just say, you know, what's there today and, 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 and really improve. I don't see many LinkedIn profiles out there that I don't think have room for significant improvement. So, so I would um, look at some of the tips. <laughs> kind of like websites. Yeah, I know. It's kind, of, kind of like, well, it's, it's a similar thing. I mean, LinkedIn for professionals, uh, that is the website for your personal brand. And, yeah. and you need to treat it that way. And you need to take it seriously because you never know who's out there looking at you. And you never know when your dream job or the recruiter from your dream company is going to be out there um, creeping on different LinkedIn profiles, and they see yours, and it just is like, oh, there's not even a there's not even a headshot. Um, I, I don't understand what this person has done. So, so really take advantage of that as a professional uh, because it's it's amazing how you could really create your personal brand using that as a as a platform. That is such great advice, and it also brings to mind. Uh, sales book that was on the show a couple of years ago where the author was talking about how too many salespeople treat LinkedIn as a resume and what they should be doing is instead telling the story of the problems they solve because it's the prospective customers <laughs> that are going to be <laughs> looking at it. They don't really care about your career. So, well, Jeff, looking back, what books have most inspired your work and marketing career? Yeah, it's... I was very lucky when I was working um, in advertising in the 90s that I got to go to this uh, this conference. Uh, it was called the Account Planners Group Conference. And it was all of the strategic planners at all the best agencies all got together once a year. And they brought in the most amazing speakers. And so the, I remember the first year I went, um, the two keynote speakers were Malcolm Gladwell 
who had just released the book, The Tipping Point. So this is a long time ago. This is this is before Gladwell had like the afro. He was still it was like had very short hair at that point. Um, and and so the tipping point was one. And the the thing that was foundational for me around the tipping point is a guy who had always worked in big advertising. The concept of um, you know, smaller things making a big difference was totally foreign to me. Cause I was like, Oh, you want to build your brand? You need 52 weeks of television. Uh, you need to spend $50 million a year. And, and his, the, the premise of tipping point kind of turned that on its head and really got me to think about marketing in a different way. And I think, which is still serves me well today as I've worked in, uh, I've gone away from bigger companies to more smaller entrepreneurial companies where you don't have a lot of budget and you're always thinking about, okay, how do I make the biggest impact with almost no money? And so, so it, that really stayed with me. And so I, I saw him speak at the conference and I went home and I, I devoured his book. And, and it's just been one of those books that I think had a foundational impact on my career. The other book and it's not a marketing book, but the this guy was also a speaker at the conference. Um, it's Captain uh, Michael uh, Abershoff. He was a Navy captain, and um, he wrote a book called "It's Your Ship," and it's about um, management techniques from the top performing ship in the Navy. And uh, and what he talks about in the book was was foundational to what I think is my leadership philosophy today, which is I'm not going to solve all the problems for the company. I need people who are working under me who are going to take ownership and who are going to help me solve the problems. Um, and that's the whole point of it's your ship. So if you identify something that's not working in the business, don't wait around for someone else to do something about it. You have to take uh, the actions to solve the problem, and, and so I think I think those two books uh, still today are foundational for me in the way I think both about marketing and then the way I think about leadership. And so I'd, I'd recommend both of those books. Um, and then you know you know there's a lot of new books out there too that are great. Um, you know, Carla Johnson's book, Rethink Innovation, I think everybody should read. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Renegade Marketing by uh, Drew, Drew Neeser. Is, yeah, uh, and I saw that great. he uh, endorsed your uh, book. Yeah, yeah, Drew's a, Drew's a good friend. Um, there's a book, a uh, recent book called uh, Well-Made Decisions by um, a, a friend of mine named Jennifer Davis. She's a marketing executive here in Atlanta. Again, um, a, a really smart book about uh, how to decision making and and the science of decision making um, and then there's a book uh, called uh, the great team turnaround by Jeff Hillmeyer uh, that was released recently and so those are some of the the books by some of my friends that I think are are definitely worth checking out as well oh terrific now is there another book coming out by this uh, guy named Perkins called how not to suck at being a CEO <laughs> Uh, possibly there's a little, maybe a little foreshadowing at the end of the book, uh, about that. But, um, you know, I, I never thought I would write a book. First of all, that uh, kind of has been an amazing process of, uh, writing a book. And, um, I think it, the hardest thing about writing a book is actually, um, convincing yourself that you can do it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, cause this, it's a very daunting task when you actually start to think about it. Uh, and then once you get going, you realize, oh, wow, I could, I could write a thousand words about this and a thousand words about that. And, um, suddenly you have, uh, you know, 60,000 words and you're like, I guess I have a book now. So, so it's, um, it's really a, a, an amazing process. So I, uh, I've done it once. I think um, I'm always looking for for interesting things to 
to to write about those. So if mm-hmm. if if I think you know I'm I'm relatively early on in my my tenure as a CEO, but uh, if I learn some good lessons along the way, I'll, I'll be sure to to share them. Now I have a question for you though, Doug. Uh oh. No, I'll ask the questions here. No, I'm kidding. But, but this is a very important question because I want to know when you're going to drop the marketing book about marketing books. Oh. Because wow. only you, the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, could really write that book. And that's the book that I'm waiting for, yes. the marketing book about marketing books. Well, I could call it The Marketing Book. <laughs> you could call it The Marketing Book. <laughs> it's yeah. like a coffee table book about coffee tables. Yeah. I think what I want to do, though, is write uh, the first book of fashion tips for marketers. Because I think <laughs> that is why you know it's, it's, it's clearly needed. And it's wide open. In other words, the, the, I, I would no competition. It's blue ocean, right? Blue ocean <laughs> I think strategy. You might be onto something. Yeah. So I'll, I'd have to think about that. I'm, you know, the truth is, I'm too busy reading these books, and I, which I enjoy tremendously. So I don't know. I don't know. There's probably a lot of head trash, and that's why when you said the first issue was, you know, deciding whether you can write a book or not. I, so I, I completely understand that. So. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, Park Mobile and Jeff Perkins' uh, LinkedIn profile and his Twitter account and all the books that have been uh, mentioned. And to the listener, I want to ask you a big favor, and it's not to give me a five-star review on iTunes or send me a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, although if you want to do either of those, that's, uh, that's not going to be a problem. What I really want you to do is reach out to Jeff Perkins and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. So you can reach out to him on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or email. And if nothing else, uh, just say, hey, Jeff, congratulations on the book. The title really spoke to me. It was very sweet of you to dedicate it to Douglas Burdett. Or you could say thank you for being a guest on the show and having to put up with his really stupid jokes. So anything, but the guests love hearing from listeners. And as a matter of fact, since we're both got Carla Johnson on the brain, she sent me an email not too long ago saying, I can't believe how many listeners I've heard from. I just love it. So please, listeners, do that. Reach out to Jeff and and thank him, or, or at least congratulate him uh, on the book. And if you are listening on a smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like uh, Spotify or or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is How Not to Suck at Marketing. The author is Jeff Perkins. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 